On this show, we talk a lot about disruption. But let's say you're running a large company and there's disruption. The sands are shifting underneath your feet in every possible way. That's our topic today on CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman. I'm an industry analyst. And before we go further, please, please subscribe on YouTube. My guest today is Risto Silesma, who is the chairman of Nokia. And in mid-2012, his revenues were declining by 26% in Q1 and 40% 40 in Q2. And that's serious disruption. So, Risto, to begin, uh, welcome to CXO Talk and tell us, where is Nokia now? Oh, thank you. It's, it's great to be here. And Nokia today is a completely different company. We have reinvented a 150-year-old company. What we do today is not mobile handsets. We develop uh, network infrastructure. So anytime anybody in the world sends a bit into the internet, be that email or video or music, it will go through some Nokia equipment or Nokia software somewhere along the way. That's almost guaranteed. And as a sign of the depth of the transformation, out of the 100,000 plus employees we have today, less than 1% worked in that old Nokia. So that's a pretty extraordinary transition over just a, a few years. And I hope that during the course of this show, we can really dive into what happened and in particular, the lessons that you learned about managing through disruptive periods of time. And so maybe a good place to start. Oh, you know, how could I have not mentioned, you wrote a book <laughs> called Transforming Nokia. I read this book, I'm I studied glad this. You remembered. I'm glad that I remember too. Um, it's a great book. I read this book and I, and I studied this book. So I encourage everybody, if you're interested in disruption, take a look. So. So, Risto, tell us about the period of time when you joined Nokia. You were, you were CEO, and then you, you became chairman of the board. So what was happening then? Well, I joined the Nokia board in 2008. I'm an entrepreneur by background, so I had been CEO of my own company for 18 years. I was also chairing a large teleoperator for, for a few years, but joined the Nokia board at the time when Nokia was on the top of the world. But iPhone had been launched the previous year, and Android would be launched the same year that I joined the board. And the financial crisis hit that fall. So the air was so full of debris from these different sources that it was really difficult on the, in the boardroom to understand what was the root cause of what and what was actually happening. So at that time, what was the, maybe let's start with what was the driver of the, the financial results that, that I was just describing? I mean, those are extraordinary numbers. Well, in 2008, Nokia did really well. And a few years earlier, Nokia was about 40 plus percent of the world's handset market. And at, at its best, the Symbian platform, which was the Nokia smartphone operating system, had over 70% market share. 
in the world until iPhone and Android devices came from the behind and, and bypassed the Nokia platforms. And that started the decline of the Nokia business so that come 2012, the situation was really, really dark. And the press was speculating on the timing of Nokia's bankruptcy. It was not if, it was when. So during that four-year period from 2008 roughly to 2012, Nokia went from being the most uh, broadly known household name in handsets, the most successful, the pride of Finland, the national pride. So it's it's extraordinary that that the disruption hit you so hard, so fast. It tends to happen in multiple industries. And even in hindsight, there are only a few moments and only a few things that one could say with some degree of confidence that would have kept Nokia in the handset business. And even that is unsure. Because when you are, when you have built the whole company around a particular way of operations, a particular offering delivered in a particular way, and then those basic structures are shifting, it is really, really hard to adapt to that. Just as an example, our core customers, operators, they were used to working in a particular way. So, for example, they wanted to warn their users when the smartphone might incur data charges. So the Symbian platform was, was forced by the operators to display all these warning signs, which meant that sometimes when you launched an application, you had to click on yes eight times before the application actually launched. Apple couldn't care less. So they just wanted to make it as easy to use as possible. And they told operators that if you don't like the iPhone, then we'll just sell it to your competitor. And they all accepted, but they didn't want to accept similar changes from Nokia. So there are powerful forces sort of aligned against you when you want to disrupt yourself. But when you talk about the powerful forces that are aligned against you when you want to disrupt yourself, I have uh, really two questions about that. Number one, what were those forces in in your case? And at the same time, why were you why did the board not see what was coming in time to deal with it? Well, I call this the, the toxicity of success. When a company is hugely successful in its own, own business, people change their behavior. It is very, very hard to resist. And you may see that as a sort of complacency, which doesn't mean that you wouldn't work hard. You just shift your attention onto different things, which may not challenge your thinking as much. So, for example, you like to, to read what the media is saying about you. You like to follow the, the stock market. You like to talk to the analysts. But you might not spend as much time worrying about new competition. You might not spend as much time thinking about the competitiveness of your platforms, the technology that will, will be coming into the market. And that's natural. It, it happens to the, the best of companies. 
also your customers are used to dealing with you the way that you have always dealt with them and they will resist any change when a new player comes into the market they don't have any existing contracts they don't have any legacy baggage that they carry with them their code is all new they don't have what we call development debt which means that sort of old code and old structures they accumulate you need to rewrite your code in a fairly frequent way to get rid of that debt so there there's a lot of things arrayed against the incumbent but of course the incumbent also has a lot of advantages like like Nokia we were by far the biggest company our economies of scale were unsurpassed by anybody our R&D and research investments were much bigger than anybody else's but those advantages often fail in the face of a new entrant who comes in with a product that is superior to a certain portion of your customer base and you may ignore them because they only address a small part like Nokia thought that touch devices which Nokia had a long history with so it, it's not that Nokia didn't know touch devices we had a touch device operating system already in 2004 so we thought that touch devices are interesting only to, to a small fraction of the consumers consumer market and that numeric keypads uh qwerty keypads would still be necessary a blackberry type device would be necessary and so forth but that was all wrong the touch devices took the whole market we're speaking with Risto Silasma who is the chairman of Nokia and right now there's a tweet chat taking place you can ask questions and share your comments using the hashtag #CXOtalk it's a rare opportunity to ask the chairman of Nokia your questions directly and he's the author of of a really good book called Transforming Nokia I've been reading it it's it's really quite good so so Risto was there anything that the board of Nokia that the board of Nokia at that time could have done and and what are the what are the the broader lessons that that successful incumbents today need to be aware of so that they're not disrupted so quickly in the same way that Nokia was well, i think there are a few questions that any board could discuss for example do they get bad news and i don't mean just bad news that sort of have happened and and they they have to be told but do they get sort of bad news about the future of the company do they get doubts whether a strategic program will work out are people brave enough and open enough to tell them that something that is being worked on might not function in the end might not be successful also is the team digging for bad news and i'm talking with the management team sometimes in these hugely successful companies the management team feels that they will be told what they need to know and they stop digging and then if if in that situation the people lower down become afraid of going to the top team 
with bad news, then that top team will be isolated. You should also think about three things about the board agenda. One is, what are you talking about? So are you spending enough time on competition, on core technologies? Are you spending enough time on your customers? Are you thinking strategically about the, the future of the markets? The second question, how are you doing that? So for example, in Nokia, we created what we call the golden rules for the board work. So we had a discussion of what kind of a way of working would be most likely to enable us to solve the significant challenges that the company was facing together with the management team. So spending time on talking about not just the what, but the how is, is worthwhile. And finally, can we challenge everybody? Can everybody be challenged? So that the chairman and the CEO and the powerful board member or management team member, everybody feels okay to challenge them. And these three questions will not provide you with any definite answers, but it will be a very healthy discussion in the team to talk about them. Also, if you decide to come up with your own golden rules, you, you shouldn't copy anybody else's. You should have that debate and discussion in your own boardroom and then think about what kind of behavior in our board and between our board and the management team would be most likely to help the company to be successful. It seems like one of the real issues that many large companies face is senior managers are distant from the truth. And it seems like, uh, so, so, so let me ask you, uh, number one, why is that? And how can an organization overcome that? That's a great question. And of course, there are many different answers as there are many different types of CEOs as well. But I think one way of looking at that is the, the way we look at CEOs, they, they are on a pedestal. They are demigods. And we assume that they know everything. And sort of we force them to pretend that they know everything. And we make it very difficult for them to ask stupid questions. And we make it very difficult for them to admit that there's something that people assume they know, but they actually don't. And that can create a culture where people don't go to tell the CEO these bad news because they assume that they already know. And also, why would I hurt? that demigod's feelings, or why would I go and make his day a bad one? So how do, how do you create a culture where everybody would be brave enough to admit what they don't know, and it, it would not be a bad thing? And we can all learn. We can all get feedback and a very open culture. And that kind of a culture is easy to create when you're a challenger but it's quite difficult to create when you are at the top of the hill. Just by understanding the, the challenge created by being hugely successful helps you cope with it. Yes, of course, startup companies live and die by the immediacy of events happening around them. As you know, having started a, a company, F-Secure, um, and run that company for for 18 years as, as, as CEO. But what advice do you have for senior managers in large organizations 
who are aware that they're not getting that, that level of truth and try as they might, they, it seems like an impossible task. So what should they do? Well, if you feel that you are not getting the God's honest truth from the troops, then the first thing is to, to tell them what you expect and what you will reward. And when people come to you with bad news, you need to smile and thank them from the bottom of your heart and prove with your actions that you actually want to hear what is really happening. And you need to do deep dives. So once you find out problems somewhere, you, you want to learn more. One way to kickstart this is to interview the direct reports of your own direct reports. So for the CEO, for example, just have occasional meetings with the N-2 leaders. And that's what I do with my CEOs, because the, the board needs to know what kind of a CEO they have. And oftentimes boards don't really know what's happening. They will be the last to know that the CEO is not the right one anymore. So what I do is I have regular interviews with the CEO's direct reports every year. And I always talk to them about the same five things. The first one is the culture of the company. How is the CEO leading the culture? What direction and what actions is the CEO taking? The second one, what are the management team meetings like? How are the agendas planned? Is there enough time? Is the discussion free? Does everybody feel they can say what they really think? Are there disputes between management team members? How does the CEO deal with those disputes? And so forth and so forth. The third topic, what's the relationship between the CEO and this particular leader? How is the CEO developing that leader? What kind of feedback is the CEO giving? The fourth topic, what are the expectations of that leader? What, what are the hopes for the future of that leader? Would that leader like to be a CEO candidate sometime down the road? And finally, what feedback would that leader give to the board? How could the board be more helpful to the management for them to run the company better? And this is a way for me to, to learn about the CEO. And I do it extremely transparently. So I report everything I hear to the CEO, but I don't point out who said what. And I, I try to help the CEO to, to fix what needs to be fixed and help the CEO to develop. And this is a way for me to, to understand better what kind of a CEO we have, but also learn more about the company. The CEO can use the same tool. And when you talk to 10 people, you just sense where the problems are. And then you can start scratching from that area and ask the next person more questions about that area. And you'll just find out. So I believe that there's, there's a pragmatic tool for almost any problem. If you just think about it deeply enough, you'll figure out a way to do it. And you'll figure out a way to measure it as well. So building KPIs to see how much progress are we making is always possible. And we have a, a very interesting question from Twitter on this point that you've just been talking about. 
can you transform or how do you transform an organization that does not trust its leadership? Well, if the organization doesn't trust its leadership, probably you need to change either the leadership or the organization. The company probably doesn't have time for anything else. And it's a question of how has that distrust been generated and created. But obviously, the primary role and, and primary duty of any leadership team is to create an environment of trust. That, that was very much a key priority for Nokia as well, because after those four years of constant declines and layoffs and disappointments and killed projects and poor quality and profit warnings, I mean, we were all pretty depressed and we all doubted ourselves like this is my my fault this is happening on my on my duty and how do we start building a layer of trust on top of that uncertainty so that we can start talking openly about what might happen and we found that when we started talking openly in a scenario based way but what might happen in the future, starting with the worst outcome? That actually reduced the fear. Because if we, if we only have one plan, and we know that the one plan that we have had previously has never worked out, then the future looks pretty daunting and scary. But once you lay out the different versions of the future, you can start building action plans to prevent the, the bad futures and to make the, the good futures more likely. And you suddenly are in control because you are taking action to define your own future. And that takes the fear away. And then you can freely talk about even you know, the possibility of a major company going bankrupt. And you can talk about how do we prevent that? How, do, how would we early on notice that now we are on a path that leads to a possible bankruptcy or any other nasty scenario. So the function of this kind of uh, scenario-based planning is both in terms of the immediate result, namely we, we identify uh, potential outcomes and can consider the various paths that might be available, but it sounds like almost equally important is the the re reducing the the fear, getting things on the table, and bringing bringing the participants uh, closer into the the potential choices, which creates that sense of of control. Yeah, when we when you set out to define the possible futures for your own business, and you may even designate a Cassandra or a red team a couple of board members, a couple of management team members who are supposed to come up with the worst outcomes. That's their duty. Nobody will blame them for that. And if they do a good job, they will come out with really horrendous futures for the company. And you see all those futures and you can start planning the actions and you can feel a little bit in control. You're also changing the culture. Because if, if you have many futures that you can contemplate. None of those are critical because if one fails, you have 
five left. If you only have one plan and then that fails, you have nothing left. And therefore, it might be that people don't want to talk about the only plan failing as long as they can avoid it. But if you have five plans, it's much easier to say that, hey, now the plan B doesn't seem to be working out. And we set this threshold for that KPI to actually scrap the whole plan. Now we have reached that, that level, so we should stop doing this. And it's fine, because we have four others left. So it, it can really change the way people talk, and therefore the culture of that team. So during this period of time, going back to your experience, uh, this very disruptive period of Nokia, you got involved with Microsoft, and which was developing the Windows Phone, Windows uh, OS for for mobile, and tell us what happened, and and weave in uh, the scenario planning that you were just describing as well, please. Yeah, I, but a year, a year and a half before I became chairman, we had just hired a new CEO who launched a a big project to discover what the capabilities of the company were. And we had two main smartphone platforms. We had the Symbian platform that had been a problem child for a very long time. And then we had been working on a new one called Migo, which was supposed to be the, the best smartphone platform ever. And that CEO, in a period of a few months, discovered that actually both were beyond salvageable. And that was a huge shock to all of us on the board. We had believed in, in Migo. We had held those prototype devices in our hands. We had seen demos and we believed that it's, it's real. And then we were told that actually it's not real. It's not going to work out. And the company that had always relied on its own core operating systems had to decide to pick either Android or Windows Phone. Those were the only choices left. And that was a perhaps the most painful decision that I have ever had to participate in. And we chose Windows Phone, and I'm trying to describe in the book how difficult that choice was. Because there were pros and cons, of course, for both. And this was a, a gigantic decision for the company. So we chose Windows Phone for various reasons and launched the first Windows Phone, first Lumia device about 10 months later. And it didn't start well. We grew, but we were so much behind Android and iPhone who had started their own growth process and accumulating uh, more momentum a couple years or four years, three years earlier. And we were just too much behind the, the growth curve. So it was hard. And then Microsoft announced that they would bring out their own Surface devices, tablets. So for the first time, Microsoft went into the market that they had always partnered with their OEMs, the likes of IBM and Dell and HP. And now they 
went directly into that market with their own device. So of course we started thinking, okay, how about if they? What about if they do a, a mobile phone as well, a smartphone? That would be a real killer for us, because we were in an exclusive relationship with Microsoft, and our whole smartphone future was dependent on Windows Phone. And then we might have to compete with our own supplier of that core software. So that's when we started using scenario planning. So we established two committees for the board, worked very closely with the management team. One was working on the network infrastructure business, trying to understand what's going to happen there, because we had a joint venture which was doing very badly and bleeding money. We wanted to get rid of that. So we built five scenarios through which we would get rid of that asset. And then a second committee for Microsoft. We called the committee the Industry Dynamics Committee, but that was actually a pseudonym to, for what the heck is Microsoft planning to do. And there we built a number of scenarios on what might Microsoft do. And then we started actions on reducing the likelihood of Microsoft buying HTC, for example, and trying to increase the likelihood of, of positive outcomes for Nokia. And then we went into a, a eight-month-long negotiation process with Microsoft where they were thinking whether they would acquire Nokia or do something different. And that was a quite a roller coaster ride. I remember at that time I was involved with Microsoft doing some consulting for them and people walking around with the the highest end uh, Nokia phone that had the great camera uh, was like forty megapixels, right? Which forty one, forty one, which which at that time was a huge number. And it's still a huge number. And that's right. It's still a huge number. And and I remember saying, oh, I want to get one of these. But they weren't the supply was constrained. And and you talk about that in your book. Um, and I'm holding up a copy of your book for people to to see. And I thought, wow, this these Microsofties have this great Nokia phone, but I can't get one. That must have been really frustrating for you. Yeah. That time when, when that device came out, we had actually pretty much given up hope for Windows Phone already, uh, just a few months earlier. We had a flagship device called 920, which had a great OS. The Windows Phone was truly a great OS and the best hardware we could build. It had the best display in the whole world. It had the most sensitive touchscreen ever. It had wireless charging. It had all the goodies. And in April that year, it started declining in sales before reaching really sizable numbers. And that was, for me personally, the sign that, okay, Windows Phone will not make it. That spring, we sold maybe 300,000 or got 300,000 new users every week whereas Android was getting a million every day. And this was a battle for the users, but the users cared about applications and experiences. So it was actually a battle for those applications. But nobody wanted to develop applications for a high number of different platforms because it's expensive and time-consuming. So 
iPhone was a given, Android was a given, everything else was a question mark. So the only way we would have gotten all the major application vendors building applications for Windows Phone was if we had a huge number of users, which we didn't. And we couldn't get those users because we didn't have the applications. So there's a vicious circle. And the, the momentum of that 1 million users per day, as opposed to our 300,000-ish per week, the, the delta was just so big that we determined that it's very unlikely that we could make it. We have a question from Twitter, but I have, but I have to ask you, during this period of time where, again, just to remind, set the stage for everybody, Nokia is one of the crown jewels of Finland. And it was just the market was collapsing and there was a very strong risk possibility that Nokia would would even go bankrupt and revenues were declining just huge amounts quarter over quarter in that kind of situation how did you maintain a clear mind and not get overcome with depression how did, how were you able to summon the internal resources needed to do that well we had a great team we had a great board with great board members we had a great management team with people who were extremely loyal to Nokia. They, they bled the Nokia blue. And of course, the people close to you give you energy. They give you faith. And you return that. You are optimistic. You believe that we will find a way. And they believe because you believe. And then you believe because they believe. And that teamwork, that the talent helps you to believe. And I, I believe in what I call paranoid optimism, which means that if you think about the worst outcomes and you act to prevent them, then you can have a calm mind to focus on the positive outcomes and make them happen. So being paranoid actually helps you being an optimist. And the board and the management team in a way, exercised paranoid optimism. We talked about the, the worst outcomes. We, we used to say that we put the moose on the table. In the, the Finnish language, we have a saying that we put the cat on the table when sort of the, the elephant in the room is, is being discussed. But Nokia's problems were so big that the cat was not sufficient, so we talked about the moose. But that gave us, us faith, and we, we had the fighting spirit, and we, we had a lot of fun. There was not a single board meeting where we didn't laugh out aloud. It's actually one of our golden rules that a board meeting without laughing out aloud is a abysmal failure. And it was not that I gave others faith. Others gave me faith, and I returned that. And you mentioned it's one of the things you describe in the book is during those darkest times to always be make to always make sure that there is that element of lightheartedness while you're dealing with these very, very difficult issues. Yeah, a smile is not sufficient. We need to laugh out aloud. And I'd happily make myself the clown if that helps others to have that moment of joy. I can just imagine what it must, I mean, it's hard to imagine what it must be like going through that situation. We have uh, another question from Twitter, uh, a really good one. And this is going back to the discussion we, we had a little bit earlier 
about uh, operational folks, the managers in the company. And this is from Arsalan Khan, who asks, how do you make the operational people take their heads out of the sand and think about the future? I think one should always lead by example. And you can, you can also measure the sort of the prevailing culture. So you could ask in, a, in an employee survey, all the, the personnel of the company, how easy it is for you to think about the future, how easy it is for you to think about the problems of the future, how easy it is for you to discuss those sort of scenarios or problems or issues or future-related thinking with your colleagues or your boss. And there's, there's no absolute level of what is right and what is not, but there's a trend that you can see. So if, if you are afraid that people in the organization don't dare do something that they should, you can actually start measuring that. And of course, you need to talk about it. You need to talk out repeatedly about what you want to see happening. And people will listen, but then you have to walk the talk, walk the talk yourself and lead by example. You know, I'm just thinking we're gee, we're we're running out of time, and there's there's a bunch of other things that I, I need to talk with you about and ask you about. But I'm just thinking of large companies that I know, where and successful ones that have been around, where CEO talks in terms of slogans, almost marketing slogans, and the team therefore talks about marketing slogans. And I'm just thinking how disconnected that is from, from reality. Yeah, it, it can be disconnected from reality. That's a little bit of what we experienced on the Nokia board. We always had a plan how to turn things around, but that plan never worked out. And the plan was always beautiful, but it, it was in a way superficial. I mean, there, there were lower levels and more details and actions, but we didn't have time to get into those. So we only saw the, the surface. And the, the, the question is always when you hear those slogans by the CEO, is what is underneath? Because slogans are important. We need to simplify things. And we, we need to have punchy ways of expressing our goals. But then you have to have the substance underneath. So just somebody talking via slogans doesn't mean that there wouldn't be substance underneath. You have to dig deeper to find out. Before we move on to, I, I really want to talk about your, your uh, diving into machine learning. But before we move on, are there any last-minute thoughts that you would like to share regarding this, this, these topics we've just been discussing, Risto? Well, there are many, but I, I love machine learning so much that I'm eager to move into that topic as well. Well, we only have about five minutes, and we could certainly go on talking about these leadership issues for a long time. So uh, several years ago, you decided that you were going to become a programmer again after 30 years in machine learning. So please tell us about that. I was one of those CEOs or chairmen who, who 
became trapped by the role I have. And the role I have is one where things are explained to me. I don't need to dig for explanations myself. There's a team that does a 10-page presentation, and then I read that, and maybe I memorize 10 different slogans, and then I can confidently speak to large audiences about difficult topics. I just repeat those slogans that I have heard others say, but I don't actually understand the topic. And I tried. I, I wormed my way into the calendars of some of the top researchers in the world on, on machine learning and asked them to explain to me, how does it work? What does it mean? And I never understood what they were trying to say. And I think many of them actually didn't want me to understand. What they wanted to convey was how much they understood. So maybe we would fund their research projects or whatever. And in the end, in, at the peak of frustration, I realized that, hey, I was approaching this the wrong way. I was a captive of my own role. I had forgotten that I can study myself. And then maybe I can explain to others in a way that I would have wanted somebody to explain to me how does machine learning work. And then I started programming again, and it was a lot of fun. And I did a number of courses taught by Andrew Eng, who is a, one of the top machine learning scientists in the world and professor at Stanford and a great teacher and did all sorts of exercises and, and prototype programs. And then I created a, a sort of a lesson for CEOs and chairmen and politicians and, and other, other leaders to understand the, the essence of machine learning. And I have had so much fun both studying, programming, and talking about machine learning. In Nokia, we decided that every single one of our 100,000 plus employees will have to do a course on machine learning. Not a complicated one. They just have to understand the essence of it so that they can ask the right questions. When they bump into a business problem, they can have the, the intuitive feeling that, hey, maybe this problem could be solved using machine learning. And then they can go and talk to experts. But you have to have that intuition first. And for that, you need to learn. So it's like a code of conduct training for, for Nokia employees. And by this Christmas, everyone should have done that. I, you have a, a video where you present the concepts of machine learning. It's about an hour. I listen to it. It's really clear. It's, it's really good. Uh, Risto, as we, as we finish up, I, I think artificial intelligence and machine learning are so, the, the enterprise software business is so filled with hype about these topics. And I suspect that most of the people really, you know, they're just, they're just words. And so you've made this priority to have your team at Nokia be clear about what machine learning actually is. And so can you just tell us what, ha what has been the, the benefit or why did you do this and what has been the benefit? And unfortunately, I'll have to ask you to be pretty quick because we're pretty much out of time. Well, it's not that I pushed the team towards machine learning. They, they knew, the CEO and the, the leadership team, they understand. But I, I managed to help them a little bit by doing what I did, which was unexpected from a chairman. And the unexpected nature of it sort of woke people up that, hey, something is happening because even the chairman is studying this. So maybe I should do. 
and then I have held these training sessions for for the board and for the management team as well, so that they would understand a little bit more. But we have a huge training program. We have Bell Labs with over a thousand PhDs, many of whom do machine learning. Actually, some of the key concepts have been discovered by Bell Labs. So we have a huge competence base of machine learning in the company. We just need to apply it, and that's what we're doing now. Okay, as we, I, I think we're pretty much out of time. Any closing thoughts that you would like to share? Well, this was fun, and I hope that the, the lessons that Nokia has experienced will help others, both entrepreneurs in smaller companies, but also large companies that are hugely successful and want to learn what will keep them successful. Well, it's been a, a very, very fast uh, 45 minutes, and I'd like to thank everybody. We have been speaking with uh, Risto Silisma, who is the chairman of Nokia. Risto, thank you so much, and I hope you'll come back and do this again another time. Thank you, and your pronunciation of my last name is improving every time you say it. All right, well, next time, good going. next time it will be even better. Thank you. Everybody, have a great day, and we'll talk with you soon.